Hey listeners, welcome to another episode of Hey Hey NWA. This is actually the last official interview of the season. Yeah, this actually may be our very last episode of 2017. The whole thing, of the whole 2017. (laughs) Season's greetings, more like season salutations. Yes. (laughs) Right? Am I right? You are correct. Yeah, I am. That's actually really accurate. So we uh, we sat down with Monica. We just sat down with her and talked to her. We're recording this intro and outro after the interview. But uh, we sat down and talked to Monica Jordan, who is an artist and art educator uh, in Rogers. And we got to talk about a lot of different stuff. We got to talk about what the experience is of educating high school humans uh, in the unique situation they find themselves in with technology everywhere all the time we talked about her artwork and peyton's affinity for it yes (laughs) okay for the listeners i have two of her pieces in my home right now and it was fun being like hey um monica look over there it's you made that hey hey, look you made that hey look look at the thing i bought your thing i bought it i gave the money and then i got the thing Mm -hmm. it's crazy that's how capitalism works yes it does and also, yeah, we dive into a little bit about what it means to be, quote unquote, an art person, because we don't think that exists, in ways you can kind of discipline yourself a little bit on how to be more creative um, just in what you do and kind of explore creating something. You know, and that comes from her being working with high school students who are feeling like they just have to meet some sort of art credit to get through the class. Uh, her inspiring in them some sort of creative something. Well, and that resonates a lot with me, as you'll hear in the interview, because I'm a math person, per se, quote-unquote. I don't think that math people exist. I think that everybody can do math, but people don't believe they can be. So it's it's really it was really fun being able to hear the other side of it. Like I didn't know people said, I can't be an art person. I'm not an art person. So anyway, I'm re- I'm excited to share this interview. Very good. Cool. Without further ado, we're going to get it started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Hey, Hey, NWA. Today, we are sitting in Peyton's studio with Monica Jordan, creator, owner of Paper and Wood Co., amongst other things. She does many other things. Um, So thanks for being with us, Monica. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Peyton and I, I think, I'm really excited for this. I think Peyton's really excited for this because he owns some of your work. I was about to say, I'm <laughs> just going to point over my shoulder here and point to um, what I bought the other weekend. And also in my hallway um, at the Wampus Carnival. Yeah, so I have that in my hallway as well. So I, I should probably show her eventually uh, her pieces that I have. <laughs> do you remember when I took this one off your hands? Remember I, remember. I do remember. <laughs> because you have a ledger. I'm honored. Thank you. So, uh, Monica, you're both an artist and you're a teacher, and I'm sure you do many, many other things, which we'll get into uh, as we get into this. But I met you, I was thinking about this on the ride over. I met you, it's been almost two years ago, at Little Craft Show um, in Springdale, 
well before I moved here, um, I was kind of checking out the art scene up here and seeing what it was like. And I remember meeting you and Jacob and thinking like, oh, there's really great people up here doing really, really cool work. And I'm really excited. Um, and the two of you stuck out in my mind for whatever reason, um, because maybe it was at that show, like looking for high, high quality stuff. I was like, they know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. So I was really excited when I moved up here because in my mind, you were some of the people that I thought of as like people in the artist community who I was really excited to be around and meet and that sort of thing. Um, so that's been almost two years now. It's wild to think that it's been that long, but I think yeah. it's really funny that you say that because I think that must have been our second show ever. Oh, really? And we truly had no idea what we were doing uh-huh. at all. Um, learning on the fly. So I think it's really neat that we stuck out in your mind in that way because we certainly didn't feel that way. Okay. So explain to us your work. Uh, what I saw at that show was torn paper portraiture. Explain to us what that is and give maybe an image for our listeners. Uh, okay. So I'm basically a collector of papers. I have um, boxes and shelves of like uh, wallpaper samples from various decades, gift wrap, hand-painted papers, scrapbooking papers, um, just all kinds of paper. And I rip and tear and cut those papers into various shapes and kind of layer and paint them on together and form images, portraits, landscapes, um, all kinds of things. Now, well, I was wondering what, like, did you have this collection of paper just before you even started? Did you just always, were you just always a paper enthusiast? Kind of without knowing it, I think. I was drawn to these papers and I felt guilty throwing them away or bringing them to the recycle center or anything like that. So I held on to them, not really knowing what I was ever going to do with them. Um, but yeah, they were just kind of sitting there waiting for me until I figured it out. And how, what was the process of like discovering this? Cause you'd said you'd only done one other show before the one that I met you at, I guess. So how did you fall into saying like torn paper is my thing? It's kind of, it's kind of weird. It was kind of by accident. Um, it happened Through my teaching practice, I was teaching elementary art at the time and trying to find something that I thought my sixth graders would be interested in in working on. So I was just researching lesson plans online and I found a torn paper lesson plan. So I wanted to try it out and see if they would like it or be able to do it even. And I never ended up doing that lesson with sixth graders, but (laughs) I ended up uh, just becoming absorbed with it myself and... The rest is kind of history in the making. Perfect. I have done one of these torn paper portraits in college. I did one and it was rough stuff. (laughs) I mean, I cannot imagine doing it with sixth graders knowing how big of a mess I made as a single college student who could get paper and have it in one place and not let it get everywhere. But then you have a classroom of 20, 30 students maybe all with paper and tearing it and trying to adhere it to a surface. And that sounds like a nightmare waiting to happen. Probably why it never came to fruition (laughs) with them, but, uh, I thought it was really cool. So Mm -hmm. here we are. Here we are. My, my biggest anxiety with that is actually tearing the paper into the correct size pieces. Like, I feel like 
tears are supposed to be, you know, organic and, you know, just however the paper tears, but, you know, actually making it the right size and whatever. I feel like that just gives me a lot of anxiety. It already gives me anxiety whenever I just tear paper in general, just that I'm going to mess it up. It's just a weird anxiety. You're worried about tearing paper. You know, we don't have to talk about that. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Well, I'm curious um, about your first, uh, your first creation. So, um, I remember you telling me um, the first time I met you that you keep this piece in the back of your classroom. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so my first creation was a self-portrait and um, it currently hangs in the collage center uh, in my classroom as just an example of a type of artwork that a person could create if they were so inclined to. Um, so I see it you know, just hanging back there. It's a, a neat reminder for me to look back on and see where I started and uh, also to share with students that, you know, um, to sort of give them a launching board of where or how a person can grow in their craft if they just stick with something. Hmm. Now, is this um, is this piece, well, I don't know if you talked about it whenever you, you know, in describing the process, but um, you also epoxy your work, correct? Yes. So could you talk a little bit about that? And also is this piece, is that one layered with epoxy as well? Definitely not. Okay. Um, my husband actually does the epoxy portion. Um, I, I don't handle that in any way at all. But originally our pieces or my pieces were, um, they were just torn paper on a sheet of transparent like laminator runoff basically. Uh, so... It, it was just, just that on a, a piece of laminator paper sealed in just Mod Podge. Um, it's pretty, pretty rudimentary looking. It's kind of embarrassing for me to look back at. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of dislike it and like it. A love-hate relationship, I suppose. Um, but no, there, there, were no, there was no epoxy, no frame, no wood even. When we did our first show, everything was on canvas. It was all torn paper, all sealed and just glue, just Mod Podge. And then with each new show that we've done, it's it's changed somewhat. So our, our materials have become a little more advanced and our process has advanced a little as well. And <clears throat> the wood that your husband uses is just like so great. With the paper, it's just a nice contrast between something um, perhaps temporal, really, paper, you know, it's really a delicate or can be a really delicate material, like opposed to like wood, which is heavy and thick and um, has some weight to it. It's like a really great uh, juxtaposition, not just with like the material itself, but also like you have a wood grain and everything and then like the paper grain and the design on the paper and stuff. It's just like, they're doing it. They figured it out. A lot <laughs> of really so interesting cool. textures in mm-hmm. our work for sure. Yeah. yeah. How did you talk him into helping you out and getting him on board? Well, how did you even think to do that in the first place? Mm-hmm. So just for our listeners. Um, so eventually the pieces developed into um, this paper collage on wood that, uh, Monica's husband would supply. So could you talk a little bit about that? Like how you, you know, became paper and wood when you were just paper at the beginning? Yeah. Well, f- yeah. Formerly, 
we were known, I was known as Miss Art Teacher Lady. That mm -hmm. was how I, I did these shows. And as these paper collages began, um, I really didn't start off with any intention of selling them or participating in shows. It all happened when um, I did a trade with my now good friend, Olivia Trimble. Um, I wanted a sign for my front door that uh, would deter solicitors and missionaries from stopping by. <laughs> and uh, in return, I made her a torn paper portrait of Larry David at her request. So uh, upon that exchange, she said, have you ever thought about doing a show? We have the little craft show coming up and I think you would be a great addition. So anyhow, that's how it started. And eventually my husband has always been involved in, in sort of the background. Um, he's always been willing and, and interested in helping and, and in building the booth set up and display and all of that. So I don't know that we ever really had a conscious discussion about this is where things should go, but it all just sort of organically came together. He's a woodworker, so we always had tons of wood scrap laying around, and I probably just eventually ran out of canvas, which is what I had originally been using. And so he was like, why don't we try this instead? And then it looked so nice, and um, I don't know, just the different textures of the paper and the wood and some of the just different feel that you could get from the work based on the materials that we're using just became more and more important to the process, I guess. Well, I'm kind of curious about, um, you know, you started, you started just doing, uh, just paper, um, up front, And then you, when did you reach a point where you were like, Hey, wait, this is, I feel like I know what I'm doing. I feel like I've found like kind of my niche here. Um, could you talk about maybe what piece maybe you made that kind of made you feel like you're there in a sense, if you do feel like you're, you're there and figuring out. I don't know that I feel I'm there. I feel, I feel very confident in my work. I'm proud, um, of my work, but one piece that sticks out for sure was, um, a commission piece that I did for, um, a friend of mine from high school. She now lives in Italy and she contacted me and said, I really love the work that you're doing. Would you be interested in making a, port a portrait of my husband's dad um, from when he was younger? And it was a really cool black and white photo, um, monochromatic. So I did the skin tones in, in gray and did um, all of it in you know shades of gray and black. And it just looked really striking and I was kind of, you know, shocked that I had pulled this thing <laughs> off. It looked really awesome. And I was really proud to ship it over the ocean. And she was just blown away by it. And her dad was blown away. And I was just blown away myself that someone would appreciate my work in that way. And that's really when I think it clicked that I could be onto something here. Or maybe I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know. Um, so backing up to your education in what you now do as I guess your full-time gig is teaching art. Yeah. What was the initial sort of uh, spark for you that made you interested in art and also but possibly art education as a career? Well, that's kind of a long and winding story. I'll try not to ramble, but uh, I've no always way, been, <laughs> I've always been artistic. I've always been, you know, drawing and painting for as long as I can remember when I was a kid, I took, you know, art classes in high school and all of that. For whatever reason, I never really saw art as a career option for me. I don't know. I wasn't really confident in my work. Um, it was highly critical, which is a normal 
normal thing. Um, I didn't realize that at the time. I think like most young people probably don't. But I took a studio art class in college. Uh, the professor and I did not get along. <laughs> she essentially told me that I should find something else to do, Whoa. some other career to pursue. What kind of studio class was this? It was just an art one. Like, um, like 2D or drawing? Studio or... Art One, I think is what it was okay. called. It okay. was at NWAC <laughs> okay. for, for whatever that's worth. Um, anyhow, this I, I earned myself a C in this Studio Art One class, and that was the last art class that I ever took in high school. My degree is actually in Spanish and Latin American studies. Oh, okay. So... I mean, that's not an education degree either, but by the time I had gone so far, um, you know, with that degree, didn't really know what I would do with that either. Heard about the non-traditional teacher licensure program um, for people who have earned their bachelor's. So that's what I ended up doing. Ended up earning my licensure in Spanish, and I taught high school Spanish for two years, just that alone. Um, and then I met a mentor teacher there, uh, I had drawn up all of these like posters and um, diagrams and things for my classroom. And she walked in and she saw them and she said, why are you not teaching art? And it was just kind of a light bulb moment. Like, why am I not teaching art? I don't know. What am I doing? So I started, you know, piecing together how I could make that happen. And I worked, worked my butt off, like trying to study all of the, you know, things that I may have missed out on in, you know, art history or just learning about techniques and materials and processes that I had no idea about lacking that formal study. So um, I took the test to get the licensure and uh, ended up getting a job teaching part-time high school Spanish and part-time elementary art at a small uh, rural school in north central Arkansas. I would uh, teach high school in the morning and walk across the street and teach elementary art in the afternoon and it was insane. Wow. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and eventually I ended up getting a full-time art position. Um, one at a school nearby there, but uh, then I had an opportunity here in Northwest Arkansas kind of fall into my lap and it's been pretty dreamy. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot imagine the planning that goes into a day of high school Spanish and then turning around and doing like <laughs> middle school art, the that seems like a pain in the butt to try to like balance time and preparation. It was crazy. I was chasing my tail, feeling like I was not getting very much accomplished mm. ever. My afternoon art classes were the craziest because there was no um, sort of flow to the schedule. So, for example, I might have a sixth grade class followed by a kindergarten class, followed by a third grade class what? with a three minute passing period in between each that I'm supposed to use to, you know, prepare materials for these vastly different art lessons and skill levels. Uh, so it was crazy. I did that for three years. Holy cow. No, thanks. I'm good. It was, it was crazy. So I can imagine why having just art classes up it, here is dreamy. It's dreamy. Describe it like that. It's great. Cool. Well, I'm curious now, just, um, I guess simultaneously being an artist and being an educator and how, and I, I say those terms as if they're distinct and, you know, not in, intersecting. Um, but I'm just curious about that interplay, especially since you're an artist and you have this, um, 
have this process, you have this creativity and you're, um, in a public school and trying to instill that in just the youth. And I'm, I'm very curious on, um, how, how you do that. And the thing is, this kind of hits my wall of understanding what it's like to be an educator, but, um, just how, how does that intersect with, um, you know, just the day to day lessons and, uh, dealing with students and, you know, even discipline and, you know, grading and also producing art and instilling a creative spirit, I guess. I'm, I'm just curious about how all of that comes together. Very big question. <laughs> and I am so sorry already. I think I'm basically just a glutton for punishment and <laughs> I stay up way past my bedtime almost every night. Um, yeah, there's a lot to be done during a day just for my, my duties at school I've got, you know, paperwork and documentation and grading, like you said, in addition to preparing lessons and actually working one-on-one -on -one with, with kids, which is the part that I enjoy the most. Um, it's really hard. It is really hard to do that. When you say that your favorite thing is working with kids, what, what about working with kids really uh, do you enjoy specifically, I guess? I really like watching them surprise themselves. Mm. So most of the time I teach secondary art. Now I teach ninth through 12th graders art one through four and ceramics. Um, so a lot of the time I have kids who come to me who are just there for the credit. They only have to have one semester, just a half a year to, to be able to graduate. So oftentimes they're coming just not oftentimes, but sometimes they're coming just to meet that credit. They already have it made up in their mind based on, some past experience that art is not for them. They can't draw. They're just there to bide their time. So I really enjoy the challenge of really kind of poking and prodding those students into being willing to try something new and surprise themselves with it. Hmm. Uh, this may be a boring question, but I also think it's an important question. Um, What's it like as a, an educator taking the funds allotted to you as an art professor and as an art teacher and giving kids an opportunity to try a bunch of different stuff on what is probably a really limited budget? That is the biggest stressor for me yeah. every year. Um, so I often go into a school year not knowing exactly what my budget is. Oh, yikes. So I have a, obviously an idea of what I need to be able to just get the basic standards met, but um, it's a little bit of a challenge figuring out how to work within that budget, like you say. So I operate a choice-based classroom, meaning that um, at an Art One level, for example, kids will start off, um, let me back up. By choice-based, I mean that there are centers within my classroom. So there's a drawing center, a painting center, a printmaking center, a collage center, a sculpture center, and a batik center for um, upper-level art classes. But in Art 1, they'll start off with the first drawing center, or the first center, which is the drawing center. And we talk all about uh, drawing technique. We practice drawing from observation, from a grid, uh, different drawing materials, drawing with color. 
um, basically trying to pack in all of those, you know, drawing frameworks, perspective, mm. et cetera, so on and so forth. And then we move on from that center to the painting center and, and all around, um, all the way to the sculpture center within art one. And then that typically leaves them about a quarter of the year, the last quarter of the year, to begin answer driving questions in their work. So more open-ended assignments. They're not limited to only working within the drawing center or only the painting center. They're able to answer that driving question based on their interest and what they've discovered throughout that year. And then the advanced art classes um, just sort of build on that, build on how do I make artwork that's meaningful and relevant to me that has a message that um, has something to say. Mm -hmm. Which is a super difficult question. As someone who studied art in college, we were just getting to that at the end of our like four year, like uh, undergrad stuff was what, how do you use your art to say something? I don't think we touch that with a 10 foot pole in, you know, high school art. So I think it's really fascinating. How do you incorporate message or meaning into material that you have access to? So that sounds like a super daunting task, you know, it is sometimes it is, it really is. I'm also curious. I, kids in high school making art is hilarious. Cause I remember myself in high school making art, like what is meaningful to me and everything is like super emo or mm -hmm. you see a lot of like punk lyrics and stuff. And maybe that was just like when I was in high school, um, oh no, that's still the thing. But now there are memes and oh no, and I work in a in a one to one school. So every student has a MacBook. Every student has oh, wow. access to technology at all times. Um, so that presents a little bit of a challenge sometimes too. But it also opens up a lot more opportunity. Well, I guess. Well, we never. I never grew up in like in a. I guess a one to one environment. So, what does that mean? And what is I guess, are you just competing against technology in a sense? Like what, what problems does that present? A lot. Um, <laughs> not so much anymore. Now my students know me and know what to expect from me. But my first year I was really working with building my program from the ground up from, um, basically the art teachers before me had been rotating in from the other two high schools in our district. So they were just there for an hour or two a day trying to fit into my school's model, which is different from a traditional school model. It's a project based learning, um, school. So oftentimes art was more of a study hall than it was an actual art class. So when I got there, I had a lot of kids who were really upset that they couldn't, you know, watch, whatever weird videos on YouTube or shop or I don't know, whatever, whatever kids do online. Um, so I was mean for a while, but once they realized that it was for their own benefit and that art can actually be, you know, pretty cool. If you are willing to put in the work, then some of those problems have gone away. I mean, they're still there. There's still kids who want to catch up on Netflix while they're, while they're arting, but <laughs> you know, it's a fast, it's just a good, vastly different world than, yes, it is. you know, it is. I mean, I, I had my cell phone under the table sometimes, but I wasn't like watching up, watching like stranger things on my phone or anything like that's bizarre. We were lucky to get Pandora on 
the uh, oh, computer yeah. like oh, to yeah. pull up anything. Okay, I feel really old now <laughs> listening to you guys because hey, hey. <laughs> when I was in high school, I had my Nokia brick and it could play Snake and that was pretty cool. But that was really the extent of technology on my person, you know, outside of the computer lab. Mm-hmm. I don't it's think computer labs are even a fascinating thing. Fascinating that like our age and your age and then the high school age right now like are all vastly different in technology oh that's gives me shivers um technology is advancing rather quickly (laughs) it's crazy um i'm gonna circle back to something so um you were talking about how you would talk to students about how you know they they have some preconceived notion that they're not an art person um and i think that's fascinating i've always i have always um, had that kind of thought about math um, because I'm I've studied math and physics in college and I'm um, definitely of the opinion that anybody can um, like quote unquote be a math person like they everyone has the ability to at least gain the the small skill not you know do all these crazy equations but you know just be able to do basic math and be confident about it um, so how do you turn I guess a student to realize that they have that. And I, I know you talked about them surprising themselves, but I guess how do you make them surprise themselves or how do you help in that process? Because I feel like that's ultimately in their control and their experiences, right? It It is ultimately in their control, but the proof is kind of in the pudding, I, I suppose uh, to use a cliche there. So um, like, for example, we start off with drawing because most kids think that's the hardest thing to do. And that's what most of them tell me they want to be able to do by the time they leave me at the end of the year. They want to be able to have seen, you know, visible visible improvement in their drawing skills. So we start off um, and we talk about the proportion of the face and how, you know, these are typical measurements of a face. If you start off drawing a face, use these measurements and, and your proportion will be correct and you can go from there. For some kids, they need things to be broken down a little bit more. So drawing from a grid is something that's very um, helpful for them. So sort of being able to differentiate among your kids and be able to provide a lot of different supports for those different needs. Um, And then they can kind of pick and choose what they need from there. Just being, I think, available and um, having a basic knowledge of different approaches for the same end result. Hmm. I'm also curious on the other end of the spectrum, the kids who are super duper into it, who take four years worth of it and then are considering like art as a career, you know, something to pursue, um, post-grad, um, what do you do with them to help them either prepare a portfolio or, you know, hone in on like as a painter or as a ceramicist or what the process is of like helping kids who are really, really into it develop like a really laser focus on what they want to produce or do. Yeah. Um, That's something that seems to come pretty naturally to them by, by I'd say the art three level. Some of them in art two kind of have an idea of a direction they want to go. Um, but art two, we're kind of working more on still working on, um, individual voice and purpose and work. And then by art three and four, um, these kids have been, you know, through all of the centers, they've gone through all of my driving questions. And at that point I task them with writing their own driving questions and they have oh. to figure out, um, 
what is my question and how am I going to answer it from an art perspective? Can you give us a rundown of your driving questions? Like run through some of them? They, they vary. Um, okay. Oh gosh. I wish uh, I'm embarrassed that I'm blanking out at the moment. Um, one that we're using in uh, art two right now, or I'm sorry, not right now, that we used in our last unit was uh, talking about trite symbolism and how do we avoid trite symbolism in our artwork. Um, basically, memes, memes <laughs> smiley faces, uh -huh. corner suns, um, you know. <laughs> corner suns. <laughs> These, you know, very basic level um, symbols and artwork, they have a meaning. Kids are choosing to include them in their work for a reason, but um, trying to get them to substitute that symbol for something that's more unique and personal. Interesting. That's fascinating. We never had anything like that, um, especially in the high school level of talking about the artwork in that sort of way. So I think that's really fascinating. I was trying to see if there's any like questions that Peyton and I could tackle as like either, I don't know if you address like purpose of like your work or why you do what you do or how you do what you do, that sort of thing. The trite symbolism is good though, like mm -hmm. recycling you know, used in old ways of visualizing things. That's interesting. So many of them are very open-ended, like, um, how do artists express emotion? And then mm. we look extensively at different, uh, different mediums and different artists who, um, express different emotions in their artwork. And, um, I try to purpose purposefully choose artists to show them, uh, that they've never seen before. Contemporary people try to focus as little as possible on the old dead white guys, you know, try to be as diverse because it's just such a, a rich world out there. And to only focus on the masters, I think is doing a disservice in hooking these kids into, into art and what it, what it can be and do and say, um, but really just seeing that variety of art, I think, mm. sparks so many of their own ideas. And even if it doesn't lead to some grand art piece, it at least gives them the creative freedom to experiment and express themselves. And they're not often not getting that in other classrooms, other, you know, subject areas. Yeah, I think that's super true. But in that most classrooms seem to really be on rails and even the creative outlet ones things like choir, band, they're even given a sheet of music to rehearse and perform, wrote, this is the thing that you're doing. And art classrooms seem to be the spaces where it's like, go do it. Like, go figure it out and do it for yourselves. I'm here if you need help. But um, there are less rails keeping people on like a single trajectory. Well, and I'm curious if you like integrated kind of, um, you, you not showing just the old dead white guys, but what if you, you know, showed local artists or, you know, we, we have crystal bridges here. I mean, why not? Like we have, you know, a variety there. I'm yeah. Why limit your artistic understanding to the same trite <laughs> uh, group of artists, I guess. I, I, I often pull in, just, you know, people that I've met uh, in the community through doing these shows, I'll pull in examples of their work when I'm talking to students. And it's really cool to be able to say, I've met this person. And to them, it's like, wow, that blows their mind. But truthfully, they're just another person like me or like anyone else in the community, just doing something that they love and making a living out of it. And 
think just for them to be able to see that example within their own community is pretty powerful sometimes. Mm. When you say masters, do you, are you referring to like, you know, uh, Renaissance type people? Yeah. When you say emotions, I, the first person that came up in my brain is Pablo Picasso with the different movements, you know, the blue era and the rose era and that sort of thing as like a color does emotion. Well, that sort of thing. Um, so I'm wondering when you say contemporary, how contemporary are we talking? Are we talking the last 150 years? Are we talking, you know, in the last 50 years? I, I really try to spread it out to reach as many kids interests as possible. I find that most of them tend to be the most interested in more recent artwork. So it just depends on what the, the task is at hand. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I do use the old dead white guys, <laughs> as often as any other art program, I'm right. sure, because, you know, they, they are as famed as they are for a reason, but I also think it's just really important to show the diversity. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Who are some of your favorite artists? I'm curious to hear maybe contemporary or otherwise. Oh man. Well, um, Frida Kahlo is probably my most famous or my most famous, my most favorite artist. Um, she's just such a rebel and just did it her way and didn't let anything hold her back. She had a crazy husband. She was impaled on a tram. Um, she had polio. I mean, she, she's a badass. (laughs) You didn't know any of that. I I knew most of it. I did not know she was impaled by a tram. Yeah. That's news to me. Yeah. I, I think a guardrail went through her body when the tram wrecked. And, um, there are pictures of her in the hospital in her cast, mm-hmm. um, like painting on her cast and just doing her thing. Going to paint another flower, another flower, <laughs> another flower until you get it, until you know, like flowers, flowers everywhere <laughs> and self-portraits. I am curious. Um, so, you know, you go through all of these stations with the students, so you must have like a variety of um, skills and experience like with various art forms, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So could you tell me a little bit about maybe, I mean, we're talking about paper and wood, but also like, I'm curious to hear maybe other stuff you've been experimenting with lately. Well, I've, I'm pretty much self-taught. So a lot of it really has just been out of a necessity to learn more and be better for my students. Um, so that's really I mean, I enjoy experimenting and, and trying new things and, and working with different media, but it started from necessity. Um, but honestly, anytime my students are working on a project, I am usually working on one alongside them, trying to help them uh, troubleshoot and problem solve and offer input. So uh, I kind of run the gamut from you know drawing and painting and batiks. Um, I really like those a lot. I don't know that my students enjoy those as much Mm -hmm. as I do, but Mm -hmm. I force them to try it at least once. Um, It's just a lot of fun. What does sculpture look like in a high school classroom? That seems like a daunting task or ceramics, either one. Ceramics has been a trip because this year has been the first year I've ever really dealt with ceramics Mm -hmm. myself. I I think I I, I did one clay project in my high school art class. And before this year, that was the extent of my ceramics experience though I've truly been learning alongside my students this year and that's been frustrating but also um you know keeps things fresh and exciting so there's that but 
within just the, the regular studio art class, um, it starts off with a tape sculpture. So there's an artist by the name of Mark Jenkins who does uh, tape sculptures and plants them in cityscapes. So they're these kind of hollow, transparent figures. They're really striking. Um, but we start off with those because the students really get into them and it gives them an opportunity to talk about space and purpose within their work. Mm. So they're uh, essentially selecting one of their group members to cast in masking tape and uh, build a sculpture from that. So that's, uh, I gain a few gray hairs from that project every year, <laughs> definitely. It's not easy to watch your students wrap each other in tape and then cut them out of the cast. And uh, we go through a lot of safety talks and uh, <laughs> have a lot of precautionary tales and things like that. So they're, they're pretty, you know, scared <laughs> beforehand. <laughs> But uh, it's a really fun project. And then after that, they have the option to select another sculpting media that they want to work with. Typically, it's either a wire sculpture. They can make, um, what's the word I'm trying to think of, um, a mobile or a sta stable. Okay. Um, paper mache is also an option. Um, and they... they ultimately they have the choice. So I run through basically what my classroom looks like. So I'll start off the day with a five or 10 minute demonstration. Hey guys, this is paper mache. This, these are some projects that have been done with paper mache. These are some artists who utilize paper mache for their media. This is how you prepare your space for paper mache. This is how you clean up after yourself. So running through those basic demonstrations of how do I access this material? How do I use it? What have other artists done with this material? And then I just open it up for them to experiment with. Mm. Um, and then there are guidelines, um, driving questions and so forth that they are expected to explore and answer within their work. But the freedom beyond that is up to them to, to make what they want to make. Well, it's nice to hear that you can take a medium like paper mache where most people think like, oh, you inflate a balloon and put paper on it and then you pop the balloon and then you have a balloon shape. Um, you can do other things with paper mache kids. Watch this. It's That's true. You know, it's really neat that you can take a material and kind of say, Oh, you see this hanger, this hanger does other things besides be a hanger. We can, you know, make wire sculpture. We can do whatever, you know, I think that is the biggest struggle probably of any artist exploring a new medium of how to stretch and expand the medium and repurpose a medium for a different message or that sort of thing. It seems like the best artists, are the ones who take a medium and push it to its absolute limits before it starts to break down or um, that sort of thing. So we would, I mean, I had a professor who would give us a block of um, blue foam and say, all right, sculpture, do it with a block of blue foam. And it was like, what do you do with a block of blue foam? You know what? Um, and it was kind of an, an opportunity for us to explore how you take it was a form project, a three-dimensional form project, but what are, what are the things that you can do with just blue foam, you know, and a big old So what did it. you do with the blue foam? Oh, I was, it was stupid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to hear it. Oh, actually. it was, I've still got it. It's a wretched piece. Um, that was, speaking of pieces that made the biggest mess, um, I mean, you shave, we would shave it down. Most people just shaved it down to be something else. Um, and so I ended up, making this sort of bulbous form. It was like two, this is such a bad way to explain Here it. Here we go. It's really bad. Um, it was like 
two separate pieces that they're actually connected, but they looked as if they were two separate pieces that were interwoven and connected to each other and one formed the other. They kind of flowed in sort of a loop. Interesting. Awful, Was awful it just a, like loops? Well, I mean, um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I can't explain it any more than that. It was just, um, that was our first project for that 3d class. And it was, it was rough. I was glad when we got off that and we did some other stuff. Um, we, that professor was great. We did everything from playing with light and color and, um, space. There's some way more fun projects than that one, but that was the one to kind of get into it, to kind of explore three dimensionality, you know, in the round, what does this piece look like? You're not just accounting for wall image and then viewer you're accounting for a viewer being able to circumnavigate it and see it from multiple angles. Art 101. I need to add anyway. some some floral foam blocks to my <laughs> my materials in my sculpture center. To also aggravate your students. Oh, it's rough. Oh, it's so rough. Some people did a good job of, you know, most people quite literally think inside the box of foam and I can shave it down to something smaller than the box, but you can't expand outside the box. Oh wait, yes you can which is kind of the idea of pushing that material um, in a way that you're not just shaving it down, but you're creating extensions to make it not just a box, but something beyond that. Have you ever seen the styrogami competitions? No. Sculptures made from styrofoam cups. Um, they're cut down and reassembled and put back together. Um, some pretty interesting forms. See, and this is why art is so fun, because you can do things like... Here is some styrofoam cups. Go wild. It's just volume is always seems to be the struggle of the artist is how much of the one thing can I get? Yeah. So, I mean, paper mache is easy because paper mache is like, oh, papers come to everybody's houses. Like basically every day we have an inordinate amount of newsprint that we can play with, you know. So. Unless you're a one-to-one -one high school, which is reducing paper costs. <laughs> <laughs> I still have managed to acquire an ungodly amount of newspaper in okay. my storage closet. I don't know how, um, but I've done it. I've stopped accepting newspaper <laughs> donations at this point. <laughs> what can people do, um, people in the community, to better help your teaching situation as far as, you know, maybe that's look at the way you vote. Look, you know, can members of the community donate to an art program in high school? Can they donate material? Can What's the way that the community can come alongside people like you who are art teachers to help you provide a better environment for your students? Donations are also, are always um, great, even if not monetary donations, just the donation of things like uh, bubble wrap or cardboard tubes or, um, just odds and ends that might make an interesting still life drawing. I guarantee an art teacher in, uh, in your community would be more than willing to receive whatever donations you have on hand. Um, but also, you know, things like markers and colored pencils and mm -hmm. scissors and rulers and some of those uh, materials that we need every day to, every, for our classroom to operate. 
day to day uh, that tend to walk off or disappear. Those types of donations are always nice also. Because I can imagine things tend to walk off pretty often in an art classroom. They do. They do. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't come up with a system yet that works to track things without just driving me insane. So mm. I kind of just have to accept that as a part of it. And I tell myself that they're taking the material to continue their art making outside mm. of my space. And that somehow makes it okay. You almost need like a like a library card system or something where you have a set of scissors in a pocket and you say you put your ID there yes, and, or your cell phone your there cell phone. <laughs> and you can have your cell phone back when you put those scissors back. Yes. Then that may lead to a mass crime spree of stealing cell phones. <laughs> I have no idea, which was a big problem in my high school was people stealing cell phones. I don't know if that's the case up here, but <laughs> people stole cell phones all the time in my high school. So. Well, maybe that's a bad trade then. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> well, speaking of the community, um, how can people, I guess, venture to challenge themselves to be creative in their day to day? If, if they say, you know, Hey, I'm not an art person, but, um, ways that they can challenge themselves kind of with small things. Um, I, I guess, how would you recommend going about that? If you're just a, a creative, maybe not, a not that you're not a creative person, but maybe you don't have the skills that you might need to express yourself or something like that. Yeah. If you're like Peyton, if you're a math person, yes, Peyton's asking for his own. Benefit. Yes. <laughs> I think the best thing, and it sounds uh, just so art teachery, but I think the best thing that you can do honestly is just make something and it might look like complete trash. It may come out nothing like the image that you have in your head. Um, but just the act of engaging yourself in creating something will pave the way for you to continue creating. And the more skill that you build, the more that your taste, the more that your image in your head matches up to your final product. Um, but even before that, just taking advantage of all of the amazing resources we have in Northwest Arkansas and our community to just appreciate the art and be a spectator and um you know there are so many community classes and organizations and things um to help you advance your your skills it's just just i think becoming an active community member in the art scene in that way is a good launching launching pad and then get yourself a little sketchbook yeah there's actually oh i can't i can't remember the name of it now um it's some sort of journal my, uh, my coworker, I should uh, preface, my coworker told me about this. I haven't actually used it, but it was so cool that I now want to get one. It's a, basically a sketchbook that has different prompts in it that you destroy it and just experiment with different materials on each page each day. And I'm kicking myself that I can't think of the name of it. It's like destroy the sketchbook. Yes, or yes, that's yeah. exactly what it is. Destroy huh. the sketchbook. Yeah. Yes. It's neat. I've got Interesting. One. It's really cool. I haven't used it. <laughs> but, you have not destroyed the sketchbook. But yet. it's it does things like rip out this sheet of paper and make something with it, like hmm. roll it up into a ball and or try to dunk it, it in your trash can. Tear each one of these corners and fold them together to form whatever. Um, it was it was really cool, and it might also be a good sort of stepping stone for someone who wants to be creative but has this idea that you know they don't know where to begin or. Um, Something like that. Sure. And that's kind of reminiscent. We had an interview with Dylan Dooms and Dylan Dooms had 
um, kind of a discipline whenever he was in this interim period um, where he would do daily doodles. And I mean, his doodles, he said he'd spend two hours a day on. And I was like, oh, that's, that's realistic um, <laughs> for me. But, um, but that's awesome that he was able to get into that discipline. And so um, I guess my mind kind of gravitates towards, yeah, like art, art is work, art is discipline and, um, and challenge and all of that. So it's so, also, yeah. it's also therapy. It's also cathartic to, uh, to kind of sit down and take something that you might be feeling or want to get out of your bones onto a material and, um, or even mimicking other people's work. I think mimicking other people's work can be really frustrating because it's not as good as that. Um, but there are artists who don't necessarily deal with like actual images, but kind of taking a piece. Um, who's the artist in Houston? He has a, there's like a, um, meditation center in Houston. Um, he has a piece in in Crystal Bridges, Rothko. Rothko. He just takes giant canvases and paints them one solid color in a lot of ways. In, in the Rothko um, place in Houston, it's just these giant, giant panels of just like black paint. And it's like, whoa, that seems really boring to do. But in my house right now is sitting a canvas that I just painted black with a tiny little brush. And it was just nice to like have some sort of therapy to put black ink on a white canvas. And it was great. <laughs> like just mimicking the way Rothko does his work, you know, looking at other artists and saying, that's interesting. I want to try that out is uh, maybe another way to jump into it. If something particularly interests you and says, I want to figure out how to do what they did. Hmm. So, I like that you said that art is work. So that's something that I struggle with a lot with my students, especially my first year with them. It's, there's this preconceived notion that someone who is good at art is just naturally good at art. They just make it and they do it and that's that. But that's not the case. Even if you find someone who you think this person has such natural talent, their drawings in their sketchbook are amazing. If you ask that person how many hours a day they spend yes. drawing in their sketchbook, they probably would shock you with their answer. Nothing ever comes easy. So I have a Salvador Dali quote on my wall. Um, I hate to misquote it. It says something to the effect of um, a masterpiece was never created by a lazy artist. Mm. Um, and so I refer to that often with my students. Like you're never going to make something that you're satisfied with if you're not willing to put in the work. Nothing ever comes easy, which yeah. makes them angry sometimes. But <laughs> Well, yeah, it's kind of frustrating. I mean, in, you know, a culture where I can turn to my, you know, phone to get something instant, my, my MacBook that everybody has and get things instantly. And then, oh no, this one thing, like, I mean, generally that's how education works is that you work into it and it doesn't come naturally, but, um, but yeah, it can be frustrating kind of in a very instantaneous age. So, so it's, it truly is a discipline in itself, I guess. Anyway, uh, that concept is very interesting to me. Yeah. I also see people who are like, if you're frustrated about getting into a creative process, like go buy a set of Legos and put something together. It's just like a way to jump into it without like 
feeling like you have to have it perfect or anything. Like there's an association of like play with that material. And so you can get into it and enjoy it and create in that space where there's not an expectation of anything to look perfect and you know, or maybe it is and you have step-by-step instructions to get the death star built or whatever it is that, you know, the Lego set is, you know, I think sometimes people are so intimidated by artwork because it's, Oh, it has to look like a very certain way. And some people don't want to approach it as like a play thing. Cause it, it it's can be hard to thing. classify something as play when you invest that much time and work into it and mm-hmm. to be experimental with something that oh, I just spent 10 hours trying to get this to look this way. What if I do something else and mess it up? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a very intimidating thing, but it's part of it. Yeah. We had a, I'm going to mention another professor that we had a piece like this where you would start with a piece. He would hand you a 10 by 10 sheet of paper and say, okay, uh, you've got two days to do something with it. Do whatever you want to it. Um, we're going to be working on this project for a week or two, but you're going to have this piece for, uh, two days. And then I'll tell you the next step when we get to the next step. Um, but hold, hold it loosely is all I'll tell you. And so we got to the end of two days and we had our pieces ready and there, um, for critique or what we expected to be critique. And he said, trade it off with the person sitting to your left. And the person to the left then had two days to take that and add on top of it. (laughs) I like this idea. And so at the end of two weeks, we'd passed it around a week and a half, two weeks, we'd passed it off two times. And so two other artists or two other people had their hands on it. Um, and by the end of it, you know, nothing was sacred. Like nothing was how it looked at that first day of critique, quote unquote. Um, and so you kind of learn to, you know, hold it a little more loosely. I thought you were going to say, he was going to say, all right, now rip it up. (laughs) He, he was a professor though, that said like, don't hold anything too loosely. Like everything you do in this class, you should burn at the end of the school year. Uh, which was kind of a neat concept too of like not, nothing here is so sacred that you can't let it go. Um, so, which was nice that it was, you know, there was a pressure or it seemed like you brought a lot of pressure to the situation. Um, and then also with that, it's like every inch of this piece of paper has been drawn on. What do I do? I, I think I ended up setting some of mine on fire uh, as part of like, I don't even know what else to do. Fire, I guess now. Um, so that was kind of a neat thing to kind of, okay, like we don't have to take this so seriously. Like it's going to be okay. Cause it's no longer in my hands. It's on to somebody else. I can't hold the thing that I did four or five days ago to, you know, seriously making myself a mental note to go back and add that to my, um, repertoire. I like that idea. <laughs> for... <laughs> Maybe come January <laughs> may have a similar project going on. Well, Speaking of January, do you have any things coming up uh, that you'd like to talk about um, related to your work um, Yeah, that you'd like to put out there? Well, I am displaying some artwork starting this Thursday for Art on the Bricks in downtown Rogers. I am um, the chosen artist for City Pump this, this month until uh, January. So there's a reception going on uh, Thursday, December 14th. And, um, then my artwork will be on display until I think January 12th or 13th. Excellent. 
And where can people go to find your work uh, for Paper and Woodco or anything else? Well, currently, um, don't have any shows lined up at the moment. Working on hopefully entering into some new exhibition spaces. My goal for this year is to focus less on art and craft shows and more on um, gallery representation or mm. um, just being able to to be able to have my work more available in town rather than at sporadic, not sporadic, but um, at temporary pop-up events. Right. Do you have a Facebook page or website or anything that yes. people can go to? Yes, uh, Paper and Wood Company. On Facebook and on Instagram, Paper and Wood Co. No dots or spaces or anything like that. And um, working on building up our web presence a little bit more. It's hard to find the time to to do all those extra things. But um, hopefully, we'll have an online store soon. Maybe even with some things to stock it with. I don't know. After uh, our past two shows, our our inventory is running a little bit low, which is a good mm. problem yeah, to have. Yeah, I'm wrapping up some commissions and things like that over the the next couple of weeks so that'll be my goal cool after that is there anything else you want to promote cool youtube videos or memes that you want to share with us that you've heard from some high well there is this really cool video it's probably old by now um but it's this guy who paints the mona lisa with cheeseburgers cheeseburger grease i have not seen this he has like 500 mcdonald's cheeseburgers and he just rips and tears them apart and it's a time-lapse video of, uh, yeah, him painting the Mona Lisa. Which will, will probably outlive the Mona Lisa, considering what's in probably. a McDonald's cheeseburger. This is probably true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a good way to end this. Uh, Monica, thank you so much for joining us. We really enjoyed our time. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Hey, everybody. Zach here. I'm here by myself on the backside of the interview with Monica Jordan. I just want to remind you guys of something. This, what you have just listened to, our interview with Monica Jordan, was our last full-length episode of the 2017 year. We will have a local lowdown, and it's coming out on Thursday. Look out for it. It'll be very good. But... Uh, us here at Hey Hey NWA are going to be taking the month of January off to make some plans for our next year of providing you guys with arts and culture stuff related to Northwest Arkansas planning interviews and events and all sorts of cool projects. We just wanted to say that we are incredibly thankful for the support that all of you have given us over this last year. Uh, we would not be doing this uh, or maybe we would if it wasn't for you, but we really enjoy interacting with all of you and being able to do this show has been a lot of fun. Uh, Peyton and I will be doing an episode where we do a year long recap, um, which I'm really looking forward to. It's going to be a gush fest. We're just, yeah. Anyway, and then some things to look forward to in the year 2018. Um, I might be bringing a new segment to the show, which I'm super duper excited about. Um, we're going to be working on doing more event type stuff. We're going to be anyway, so be looking out for that. Uh, but we're going to take the month of January off to kind of make preparations for that sort of stuff. Um, so thanks for being here guys. We really appreciate all the support that you give us. 
Um, if you somehow have not followed us after a year of being with us on Facebook or Instagram, we are Hey Hey NWA on Facebook, Hey Hey NWA podcast on Instagram, and Hey Hey NWA.com is where you can find all of our other stuff. So, yeah, thanks for being here. Uh, be looking forward to the local lowdown and our couple of episodes in January to uh, give a recap of what we've thought of our first year of Hey Hey NWA. So, hope you guys have a wonderful week and a Merry Christmas to all of you. Happy New Year, all of that stuff. We will see y'all in the new year. Bye. I think I'm supposed to say that's the jam. Does that happen here? Yeah. Yeah, that's the jam. Bye, y'all.